2 Samuel chapter 9. If you're using your uh, Pew Bible or the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 243. And as you're turning there, I do want to once again say Happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers who are with us this morning. We are so grateful for you all and we appreciate all that you do. And I pray that you all have a, a very blessed day. Uh, So last week we studied chapter 8 together, looking at the summary account of many of David's victories as the king of Israel. And today as we come into chapter 9, we encounter a beautiful picture of grace from King David. And more than a few commentators agree that outside of Christ's sacrifice for his children on the cross, this may be the most amazing picture of grace in all of Scripture. So whether you know of the story of David and Mephibosheth, or if this is your first time hearing it, I pray that this message would serve as a massive source of encouragement for you this morning. And as I was thinking about preaching on this chapter, I began to also think about the fact that today is the day that we do celebrate Mother's Day. And most of the day, most of the time in a Mother's Day sermon, the focus is oftentimes centered on encouragement. And uh, Matt Chandler actually jokes that on Mother's Day, we typically talk about how wonderful our mothers are and how much of a difference you have made in your children's lives, which is completely true. And then we get to Father's Day, and on Father's Day, we tell all the dads that they need to get their acts together. (laughs) And so, anyways, in, in light of that trend, I think it works very well for us all today, certainly not just the mothers, but all of us as we see this incredible narrative with David and and the kindness that he shows to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Really seeing how the kindness that David shows to Mephibosheth is in many respects a very clear picture of the grace that Christ has shown to us. Now, I remember the first time I really heard this chapter explained. I was working as a counselor at a Christian summer camp in Pennsylvania. A lot of you guys would know the name. It was called Summer's Best Two Weeks. And as he was teaching, one of the leaders there was was going through 2 Samuel 9. and, And I just remember sitting there thinking, you know, how have I never heard this story before? And so needless to say, I am very eager to unpack this chapter with you all this morning. And what I would really like to do as we look at this chapter is to kind of walk through this chapter as a whole, and then at the end, look at at how this narrative points us to the greater grace that Christ has shown to his children. And as we consider this concept of, of grace this morning, I would also ask that you show me grace, as this is now the second week in a row that I've given you a blank outline I do apologize for that. But if you are taking notes, there will really only be two major sections here. So the first one will be a picture of grace, and the second one will be the scope of grace. So without further ado, let's go ahead and read this chapter, starting in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makur, the son of Emil at Lo-Debar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makur, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. 
And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would encourage us through your word this morning. Lord, as we encounter this beautiful passage in Scripture, would you use it to remind us of your goodness in our lives? God, help us to recognize that you are a God of grace who delights in bringing lost sinners home. We ask that you would be with us now. We ask this in your name. Amen. So as we get into this chapter, we see right off the bat the first question that David asks. Is there anyone left in the house of Saul so that I can show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? In the previous chapter, we see that David has spent some time setting up his, his government, so to speak. And during this time and after this, the text seems to imply that there was a season of peace and a season of quietness in David's life. And so it would not be a stretch to say that this time of peace would allow for reflection for David. And of course, this is only speculation, but I imagine that David began to, during this time of peace, he began to recount his past and think about all of the ways that the Lord had blessed him, not only through just deliverance in battle or in becoming king, but also through the friendships that he had, the friendships that he had established. And, and I think he began to specifically think about Jonathan. And as he thought about his love for his dear friend, he began to think about the promise that he had made with Jonathan so many years before, which is what prompts this initial question. Is there anyone in the house of Saul that is still alive so I can show kindness to them? And the word that I think that should really be used is not kindness, but rather grace that I may show grace for Jonathan's sake. Grace is a demonstration of love that is undeserved, unearned, and unrepayable. And David wants to extend this grace to the household of Jonathan. And why is this? In short, to not show the the whole scope of the story, in short, David had made a promise with Jonathan, and, and he wants to keep that promise. So back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David is on the run from Saul, and he and Jonathan made a covenant with one another. And in this exchange, Jonathan says to David, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth." So Jonathan is seeking to make this covenant with David because he knew full well that the Lord was going to establish David as king over Israel. 
And in those days, it was the practice that when a new king would take over, all of the family members of the previous regime were to be killed, were to be slaughtered, to remove the possibility of them being uh, a potential threat to the throne, of them being able to potentially rise up uh, back to power. And this wasn't just uh, something that only ruthless kings did. This was essentially the practice. I mean, this was the next logical step when you became king, was wipe out any family members that could pose a threat. Dale Davis comments, When a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was Purge. And you don't have to go wandering into the ancient Near East to confirm this. You can stay within the pages of biblical history and watch Basha in 1 Kings 15 or Zimri in 1 Kings 16 to find out what happens to the remnants of the previous regime. This was conventional political policy, solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it. Everybody practiced it. So this is why Jonathan essentially asks, would you mind breaking the trend for your friend? Will you take care of us? Will you protect us so that, so that we will not be forgotten? And without hesitation, we see that David agrees. His love for Jonathan prompts him to enter into a binding covenant with his friend. And we read in 1 Samuel 20, verses 16 and 17, And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And one thing that I, I didn't realize initially is that David actually makes this promise again to Saul a few chapters later. In 1 Samuel 24, uh, verses 20 and 22, after David has spared Saul's life once again, Saul says to David, And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. I mean, what a noble man David was. You know, David has made these promises to both Saul and to Jonathan, and he fully intends on keeping his word. And now later in 2 Samuel 9, we find David thinking about this, prom this, this promise that he has made, which prompts the initial question. And he asks if there is anyone. Now I think it's interesting to note that he didn't ask if there was anyone qualified or ask if there was anyone worthy, but rather he just plainly asked, is there anyone? Is there anyone still living who can be the recipient of grace? As one commentator says, this is, unqualified acceptance based on unconditional love. And in verses 2 and 3, they found someone. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And I absolutely love this here. You know, David is actively pursuing someone to show kindness to. I mean, it would be generous enough if David had just said, you know, if I, if I ever meet anyone from the house of Saul, I'll be sure to let them know that I'm not going to wipe them out. I'm not going to take care of them in a, in a violent way. Um, I'll, we'll just be good and, and I'll even take care of them if I see them. 
Um, that alone would be countercultural. But David takes it so much further than that. You know, David's not satisfied with passive grace. He is proactively looking to show grace. You know, he is chomping at the bit to do so, eager for this opportunity to show grace. You know, he's, he's performing Google searches to find someone from the house of Saul that's still alive. He's stalking Facebook profiles, trying to connect some dots. He's dusting off phone books, trying to contact, trying to find a contact who is going to have more information about the house of Saul. He is proactively seeking this opportunity. And that is when he finds Ziba and he summons him. And Ziba's response to David about Mephibosheth seems to be very telling. And one commentator notes that if you read between the lines, you will feel an implication in the counsel that Ziba gives the king. And it seems that Ziba is trying to tell David that Mephibosheth is not going to look the part. He's saying this guy is going to stick out like a sore thumb in your courts, David. He does not have any fancy clothes. He, doesn't, he will not fit in the surroundings. And he has a serious disability. Those of you guys who are familiar with the game, among us, Mephibosheth is clearly the imposter. And David asks if there is anybody. Ziba responds and says, yes, but he is crippled. But David's response to this is amazing. I mean, he doesn't even skip a beat. He moves right on to the next question. Where is he? He asks no follow-up questions about Mephibosheth's condition or how he even came to be disabled. He simply asks, where is he? And in this, we see the way that grace is. Grace is not picky, and it does not look for things that have been done to deserve love. As Chuck Swindoll says, grace is God giving himself in full acceptance to someone who does not deserve it and can never earn it and will never be able to repay it. And this is what makes the, the story of David and Mephibosheth so memorable. A strong king reaches out to an undeserving and disabled man. David simply asks, where is he? And Ziba answers in verse 4, he is in the house of Makur, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. So in other words, Mephibosheth is in hiding. He's living in a barren place at this time. Since it was, as we talked about, the, the custom to kill anyone that is related to the previous regime, if you fit that bill, you were either killed or you hid. Those were your two options. And Mephibosheth was in hiding. And the only one who knew where he was was Ziba, an old servant of Saul. And we don't know too much about Lodabar, rather than, or other than it was most likely a, a barren pasture, a barren pasture land, and we know that it's where Mephibosheth is living, where he's hiding. However, I will tell you, even the name itself does not sound like a very pleasant place to live. You know, low Debar does not exactly ring as a vacation spot. And as I was thinking of, of low Debar, I actually immediately thought that, that low Debar, and I ask you bear with me for a minute, but I actually immediately thought that low Debar is probably a bit similar to Buffalo, New York in its undesirability. <laughs> so for years, the, the joke in Buffalo was that the city is bad, the weather is bad, and the sports are bad. Now, thankfully, the sports are turning the tide a little bit, but, but that's how I picture Low Debar, a place with nothing to, to really offer. And when you go in, you're just excited to leave. And, and one thing I find interesting is that David never asks 
for his backstory. Now, he doesn't ask how he wound up in Lodabar, nor does he ask how he became crippled. However, we do get the answer in Scripture as to how he became crippled. In 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, we read that Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And that's the news that Saul and Jonathan had perished in battle. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. When the nurse heard that Saul and Jonathan were dead, she picked Mephibosheth up to to get him out of danger. And as she ran, she tripped and, and Mephibosheth fell out of her arms. And as a result of this fall, he became permanently disabled and had been hiding away his entire life, terrified of being caught. And so could you imagine the sheer horror that must have come over him when a man sent from King David himself shows up on his doorstep? And then after answering the door, Mephibosheth hears the terrifying truth that the king has requested to see him. So two weeks ago, my wife, Kiera, she got her summons for jury duty. And every night she would call the number hoping that her number wouldn't be called upon. And we all know the stress that comes with calling that number, praying that your number's not going to be called. And here we see that Mephibosheth's number has been called. The only thing that he must have been thinking is, this is, this is where my story ends. It's, it's been a real fun ride, but, but this is where it ends here. And he's then taken to Jerusalem, and he's then taken into the presence of King David himself. And the scene is set, and what follows is certainly beyond Mephibosheth's wildest dreams. Looking at verse 6, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. So what a moment this must have been. You know, this man who must have been shaking in his boots falls face down before the king, completely at the king's mercy. And David asks, Are you Mephibosheth? And he tells him, Yes, it's true. That, that is me. At this point, Mephibosheth had no idea what to expect, but he certainly was not expecting what we read next in verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So once again, can you imagine what Mephibosheth must have been feeling in that moment? expecting a sentence to death, probably expecting to to feel the sword put to his neck, he instead hears these incredible words from the king. What a picture of undeserved favor. And God's, or David's promises, he promises immense kindness to Mephibosheth. And in fact, in the original Hebrew, verse 7 reads as, I will surely show you kindness, emphasizing the fact that David is going to take care of Mephibosheth. And as we have seen, the reason for this promised kindness had nothing to do with Mephibosheth. It had to do with the commitment that David had made before Mephibosheth was even born. Mephibosheth did nothing to deserve it. The promise had a purpose that did not depend on Mephibosheth. As we read, it was for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And it was not unusual for promises in Scripture to be for the sake of something beyond the one who receives the promises. 
In 1 Samuel 12, 22, we see that the Lord promised not to forsake his people Israel for his great name's sake. And in 2 Samuel 5, God exalts David's kingdom for the sake of his people. And David understood in 2 Samuel 7 that the Lord had revealed his great purposes to David for the sake of your word. And in a similar way, it was David's covenant with Jonathan that stood behind the promise to Mephibosheth. David's kingdom would be one that would show kindness to those who would have reason to be enemies, such as Jonathan and such as Mephibosheth, if they received David as their king, he would show kindness. And the kindness that David promised was expressed in two gifts to Mephibosheth. So first he says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. So this land did not refer to the land that Saul had ruled over, but rather the, the personal private land that was possessed by uh, by Saul. So these, these, David is saying, they would be fully restored to Saul's grandson. He would suffer no loss in David's kingdom. And second, I would, and I would argue even more significant, David says that you shall eat at my table always. To eat at the king's table was pretty clearly a very special privilege that many people did not have, but not Mephibosheth. There would always be a place at the king's table for him. And the promise of David to this potential enemy is a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus who brings the fullness of God's kingdom. And the parallels, I think, are are quite clear here. Just as David said, do not fear to Mephibosheth, so the angel said to the shepherd in Luke 2, 10 and 11, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And as David promised kindness to Mephibosheth, we see in Titus 3, 4 that the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior has appeared in Jesus Christ. And just as David ensured that Mephibosheth would not lose out by becoming a servant of the king, so Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 19, 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And as David welcomed Mephibosheth to his table always, so Jesus said in Luke 13, 29, that people will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. What a gracious Savior we serve. Understandably, this was probably a lot for Mephibosheth to take in, and it seems that he found this promise to be pretty difficult to believe. In verse 8, we read that he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Essentially, Mephibosheth asks David, how can this be? And I think it's interesting because if you recall back in chapter 7, as David is reflecting on the promises that God has made to him and his house, David cries out in verse 18, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And this seems to me to be a very similar response to Mephibosheth. In 2 Samuel, this in 2 Samuel chapter 9, this response is addressed to the king of Israel, whereas in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the response is addressed to the king of kings. And now in verse 9 through the rest of the chapter, we see 
the aftermath of this promise that David has made to Mephibosheth. So starting in verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. And after reading this, all I can say is, is wow. We've said it already a few times, but this is a picture of what grace is all about. And Chuck Swindoll actually encourages us to put ourselves at that table and picture what life would have looked like for Mephibosheth in the years to come. And I thought it was such a a cool picture to visualize, so that's what I want to do now. But I do want you to know that this is completely 100% stolen from Chuck Swindoll, and then slightly modified. But as we, we picture this scene, we see that the meal is prepared, the, the servants have, have been working all day. They got the food all prepared and the bell rings signaling that it is time for dinner. And as the, the food is being set on the table, one by one, all of the family and the guests enter into the room and they, and they take their seats at the table. So King David comes in and, and he takes his seat. And the next one to enter the room is, is Amnon, who is the, the firstborn son of the king. And he takes his seat too after a, after a long, hard day. The next one to enter is Joab, who is one of the guests, and being the commander of of David's army, he is about as muscular and and masculine as they come, walking tall like the experienced soldier he is. Next in the room is Absalom, a man that would have any modeling job he could have ever wanted. From his head to his toes, there is not a single blemish. He doesn't even need product in his hair because it's just flawless. And he too goes and finds his seat. And right behind Absalom is Tamar, the beautiful daughter of David. She too comes in and sits down. And after she sits down, Amnon then gets up and finds a seat next to her. And down the road, you could eventually add Solomon, who would be joining the fold. And he's had a long day studying, working on the books all day long, but he too finally comes to the table. And as they're all situated, ready to eat, they look and they see Mephibosheth hobbling in and and making his way to the table. And he too comes and and humbly joins the others as he takes his place at the table just as one of the king's sons. And and Micah comes along, uh, along with him and takes his seat at the table that has been reserved for him. What a scene. What, what a picture of grace. And what is so beautiful about this story is that it really isn't the end of the story. That story is still going on, reflected in the lives of God's children. And what I would like to do now is look at how this account here serves as a powerful illustration of God's grace in the lives of his children. Not only in who we are now in Christ, but also our condition before Christ stepped in. In many respects, this is a very clear representation of the gospel in the Old Testament. And the first thing to note is that at one point, 
Mephibosheth enjoyed uninterrupted fellowship with his father, who was the son of King Saul. And so it was with Adam, who walked with the Lord in the garden and also enjoyed uninterrupted fellowship with the Lord. And like Adam, Mephibosheth once knew what it was like to be in fellowship with the king. And when disaster struck and Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, the nurse fled in fear and Mephibosheth fell. His fall left him crippled for the rest of his life. And in the same way, when sin entered, Adam and Eve hid in fear. And the first response of humanity was to hide from God. And as a result, mankind became a spiritual invalid and apart from Christ will remain so forever. Then David, out of sheer love for Jonathan, extended grace to his son. And so God, out of love for his son Jesus and the penalty that Christ paid on the cross, shows grace to the repentant sinner. And he is still saving people who are dead in their sins, who are hiding from God, broken, fearful, and confused. Our God is a God who delights in saving sinners. And the Bible says if we turn from our sins and trust in him for forgiveness, that we will be saved. Believers are walking with God today because he demonstrated his grace to us out of love for his son. And continuing on with grace, we've already seen that Mephibosheth did not have anything to offer the king. He had nothing, he deserved nothing, and he could repay nothing. He was in hiding from the king. The same is true of us. We deserved nothing, we had nothing, and we could not offer God anything. I'm often reminded of a quote from Jonathan Edwards who said that the only thing we bring to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And some of you may be able to look back to a time in your life when you were involved in a very futile life, moving from one sin to the next, spending one confusing night after another, wondering when it was all going to end. And you offered nothing to God. You had nothing that you could give him, not one good work that you could offer. And yet the king of kings set his heart on you. Think about that this morning. If, if you are in Christ, recognize that God has set his heart on you, demonstrating love and forgiveness that we can't earn, love and forgiveness that we don't deserve, and love and forgiveness that we can't repay. That's grace. And there is something freeing about grace. It takes away all of the demands takes away all of the, pro- the pressures to perform, the expectations to live up to, and it puts it all on Christ's shoulders. Believers are children of God not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. David restored Mephibosheth from a barren place to a place of honor. He took this broken, handicapped person from a barren wasteland and brought him into the courtroom of the king. The analogy is clear. God has taken us from where we were and has brought us to where he is, to a place of fellowship with him. Through Christ, he has restored us to what we once had in Adam. David adopted Mephibosheth into his family and he became one of the king's sons. This is what God has graciously done for the believing sinner, adopted us into the family of the heavenly king. He has chosen us, 
brought us into his family and said, you sit at my table and you enjoy my food. I give you my life. Every Christian is adopted as a family member of God. We also see that Mephibosheth's disability was a constant reminder of grace. In the life of Mephibosheth, he had nothing but crutches, and yet he was treated like royalty. Every time he limped from one place to the next, he was reminded, I am in this wonderful position because of the grace of the king and nothing else. And so it is with the Father. Our continual problem with sin is a continual reminder of his grace. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And every time we think of that verse, let us be reminded that grace remains available. God has covered our sins and he says, you're mine. I have chosen you simply because I wanted to. The last thing we see is that when Mephibosheth sat down at the table of the king, he was treated just like any other son of the king. And the beautiful reality is that is the way it is now and how it will be throughout eternity. The cross has leveled us. We serve a God who does not show partiality and who has prepared a place for all his children to enjoy him in glory for all of eternity. We will sit at a table with Paul the Apostle. We'll sit at a table with the disciples, the saints of old, with Edwards and Charles Spurgeon and William Carey and all of these men, all of these brothers and sisters. And God will say to each of us, you are mine and in love I have chosen you. Enjoy. And we will feast with the king. What a day that will be. And speaking of eternity, it will take us in eternity to fully understand what this truth really means to us. We'll spend the rest of our days trying to grasp this and we will never fully understand God's love for his children. The truth that he has chosen us out of his love, out of his grace, in our sinful and rebellious condition and has taken us from a desolate place and has given us a place at his table. As we said during our scripture reading that he in his grace has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The story of Mephibosheth points us to the wonderful reality that God has restored us and has given us a seat at his table through his son. That's the main truth I want you to see in this passage that God has restored us and given us a seat at his table through his son. And this is the reality of all of those who are in Christ. So we spent a great deal today talking about the gospel. And this gospel, this good news is available to anyone who in faith turns from their sins and trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. John 3.16 is a very well-known verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever turns from their sin and believes in him will be saved. And I said earlier that God does not show partiality and he doesn't reject anyone who genuinely calls on the name of the Lord by faith. Scripture assures us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the free gift available through Christ. 
If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I urge you to seek him today, asking him to reveal himself to you. Pray that he would show you your sinful state and show you your need for a savior. And then cry out to him. Ask him to rescue you. This joy that we've talked about today is a joy that is only available through Christ. If you're here and you do know Christ, let these truths drive you to worship. Spend some time giving thanks to your Lord and your Savior, thanking him for rescuing you from a barren place and bringing you into his kingdom. For loving you when you didn't deserve it and showing grace though you had nothing to offer. As we sang earlier, what a friend we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. God, we recognize that we have only but scratched the surface of this glorious truth. Thank you for saving us, though we did not deserve it. Thank you for setting your heart on your children, not because we had anything to offer, but strictly because of your grace. God, help us to meditate on gospel truths each and every day, never ceasing to be amazed by your love and by your grace. God, there is a reason we sing Amazing Grace, because it truly is just that, amazing. I also pray now for those here who do not know you. Father, I pray that you would open their eyes and show them who you are. God, use this message to convict them of their sin and help them through your leading to see their need for a Savior. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.